Okay, good morning, Brookview. Woo! Okay, happy October 1st. It is here, very quickly, but it is here. My name is Haley, and I'm gonna go through announcements today, so there's only a couple. First one is Ignite. That's hopefully behind me. Um, October 22nd at 6 p.m. If you're wondering, well, what is Ignite? Ignite is kind of like our family meeting. It's an opportunity to come here, what's going on at Brookview, hear from one another, pray together, and it's just, it's a good time. So mark your calendars for that. If you're wondering, okay, I have kids, what do I do? Bring them, because they're gonna go next door. We have a pajama and movie night, and then popcorn. So put their pajamas on, get them ready for bed, but bring them, and they're gonna have a blast. They can bring their blankets, their gigis, or their stuffies, anything that they use for comfort, and they'll hang out downstairs. Um, and then the last announcement that I have is our Connect card. So we love hearing from you, so go ahead and fill that out. Um, and then when you leave today, out the front door, before you leave, there's a little basket. You can drop that there. And if you are watching online, we're so grateful that you're here and you can fill that out online. Just like that. So that's all I have. Thanks, guys. Love your blazer and your peppiness. And it's very fall, makes me think pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> well, you guys, this, this past year, it, it kind of felt like everywhere I turned, a theme was coming up. Through various conversations with people in our church, I was hearing that there are a whole lot of people that, that feel kind of inadequate in the arena of prayer. Like, there's a widespread feeling that goes something like this. Like, I think prayer is, is really important in the life of a follower of Jesus, but I, I don't feel great about it in my life. Like, I, I don't feel like I, I do it often enough, or I don't feel like I do it right, or at least I feel like there's, there should be more to this thing. I should be experiencing something different than, than I am. And, and as I've been hearing that kind of thing voiced again and again, I have to tell you guys, I completely relate to that feeling. You know, I've been a follower of Jesus for a little over three decades now, and prayer has never come easily to me. Um, like in my first few years following Jesus, I'd go to a small group or something, and as long as we were talking about like life or spiritual topics, I felt comfortable. But when the group would inevitably transition to a time of prayer, you guys, I felt like a fish out of water. Uh, it just felt so foreign. And, and on my own, prayer really wasn't a whole lot better. Like, I knew I should pray, but I really felt like I, I wanted to pray. And when I tried, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I'd barely get like 30 seconds in, and my mind would drift, right, to all kinds of things. I'm in my living room, and I'm just like, oh, there's kids playing out there. I was just like, I'm, I'm lost. So here we are launching a series on prayer 
But I want to be, be honest. Throughout my three decades of walking with Jesus, prayer has been a struggle for me. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, there's no use pretending. Um, I want to be upfront about this. And, and at times, it's made me feel all kinds of things. I mean, through the years, it's made me feel things like intimidation, right? Because while I've grown and matured hugely as I followed Jesus over the years, in some ways, prayer has sort of felt like the one thing that has kind of lagged behind all the other stuff for me. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's felt like prayer is, is really the most deficient part of, of my walk. Now, I've continued to stay at it, of course, right? You're like, you're a pastor. You should be decent at praying. No, well, I've stayed at it. But it has often felt like, you know, I even I'm, I'm not really sure I'm doing this right. Or at least I, I feel like I'm, I'm not really connecting to what's possible. Like, like prayer should have a, a much greater potential. And prayer has also fostered in me a certain degree of, of guilt or shame at times. Because I've often felt like I, I ought to be having some kind of experience that maybe I, I feel like I hear other people describe. And so secretly, I suspect that, that really my prayer life is just weak and inadequate. And at certain times, prayer has induced in me feelings of just flat out like resignation because I've felt all this stuff and I haven't known how to make it better or different. And so at times, I have just sort of felt like, you know, I think prayer is a spiritual gift and like, I don't have it. And there's just been a certain hopelessness to it all. So, okay, so I'm just, I'm just being honest with you guys and I feel like that's important. I, I, like there's no point in putting up a charade about all this because I, I can't lead well while pretending to be something that I'm not. So in full transparency, prayer has often been a massive struggle for me. But I have also, over the years, over the last 30 years, experienced some very cool things. Um, so let me, I'm just going to run you through a, a few of those. So like prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, I was an all-out, very highly committed, devout atheist. Um, I had grown up that way and had never really known another way. But uh, in my late teens, I just found myself surrounded by sincere followers of Jesus everywhere. Um, and, and so eventually, everywhere I went, so there, was a, there was a Christ follower there, like living differently and being kind to me. And eventually, I started, I started to ask a whole lot of questions. And over time, I was increasingly drawn to Jesus and his way, but I couldn't seem to, like, fully make the leap. I had all kinds of doubts that I just couldn't seem to get past. I'd, I'd become, like, unsatisfied with my atheism, so it, it started feeling shallow, but I couldn't, like, authentically go all in with Jesus either. And so I was in this weird spot of, of feeling disoriented and displaced and, like, torn between two worlds. And that led to my, like, first just consistent heartfelt prayer that went like this. Oh God, if you're really there, like if this is real and the story of Jesus is, is legit, help me see it. Like if you're real, if this is real, then, then show me God. I, I need you to show me. And I started praying like some version of that prayer over and over for, for a few years. And what I'll tell you is that in the next few years, I started having new experiences and learning new things. And over time, 
my faith just like blossomed and my doubts shrank. They didn't totally go away, right? There are still things that I don't get, of course, and, and may never this side of heaven. But I experienced and learned enough to say, you know what? I'm comfortable going all in with Jesus. I, and he, so I asked a God that I wasn't even sure was there for something, and in time, that thing materialized. That's what happened. So a few years later, I had another cool experience with prayer. Um, in college, during the summers, I worked at a golf course, Lake Padden Golf Course up in Bellingham. Anyone ever played Lake Padden? Oh, bless you guys. Jesus loves Lake Padden, so... So what I would do is I'd change the pins every morning, drive around and change the pins every morning, and then in the afternoon I'd mow. But in between the morning relocating the pins um, and the mowing, then I would have lunch. And so I'd go to my car and I would listen to a preacher on the Christian radio station. So if you're under 30, it was like the 90s version of listening to a podcast. Yeah, so, so I would soak up all this, this Bible teaching on my lunch break, and then I would go mow with my mind just like ruminating and spinning on God's stuff. So this is what's in the Bible called meditation. It's just like mulling over God's stuff. So I, I think about theology. I would think like what God is like and why it matters and maybe problems that I was facing in my life or something that I was excited about or nervous about. And as I was thinking... And mulling this all over, every once in a while, I just pray real short prayers. And, and here's what happened as I did that. I just, over time, felt more and more connected to God, right? And I got new ideas and insights for all kinds of things. I, I got vision for how to move forward with lots of stuff. I got clarity about who God is and what he's like and why it matters and, and how it translated to my, like, day-to-day -day world. It was really cool. Okay, two more, two more quick examples. Uh, first one, about 10 years ago, uh, Jen and I went to Cabo. And in Mexico, a, a crazy prayer thing happened. So in Cabo, um, Jen and I discovered snorkeling for the first time. Um, it was this, like, there was this, like, little private cove by our v VRBO condo. And so the first few days, we went down there, and it was, like, just this beach that nobody would really go to, maybe one or two other people on certain days. And the water was so calm and just crystal clear and beautiful and peaceful. And so we got out there with our snorkel stuff and, and the water gently just sloshed us back and forth. Ooh. <laughs> right? And the fish, the vibrant fish are like right underneath you and they're getting sloshed along with you. So you're just like, ooh, ooh. It was, it was how, how many of you like to snorkel? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. So good. It's like heaven. Okay. By the end of our trip, though, the water was not so calm. In fact, we, we had our first encounter with uh, like a Mexican riptide. So we, we got in the same water toward the end of the trip, and I immediately felt like a, like a strong current. And it made me nervous enough that in feeling that that I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stick pretty close to shore. But Jen didn't notice it. And before I could even get her attention, she just took off and swam way the freak out, like, like 300, 400 feet. I mean, she was just way out there, and she's not that good of a swimmer. I'm just like, what are you doing? 
So as I struggled to stay near the shore, the, the current just kind of kept pushing me out. So I was trying to yell to Jen that I was heading in, we need to head back in. But, but every time I, I would try to get her attention, she just had her face down swimming away from the shore, just blissfully unaware of, of the reality. And, and when I treaded water and stopped to tread water to try to tell her, it's like the current just pushed me that much further out. I was just losing ground. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to have to let her know from the shore. Um, and I headed in. And that is when reality really hit. I was, I was swimming hard, like really hard, and barely getting anywhere. And so, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, I started to like panic. I, like panic was setting in because I was burning up energy. I'm like, I don't, I, in order to get somewhere, I have to swim so hard, I don't know. And so I'm barely, I'm barely making it. So as the panic started, I, I, I just put my head down and swam my absolute hardest, which meant that I was breathing really, really hard, right? The snorkel gear is off, it's, you know, and I'm breathing really hard, but as I'm swimming in, now with the water not as calm, w big waves are coming in, and they're crashing over top of me, right? Well, I can't, I'm breathing so hard, I can't hold my breath through that, and I don't know when they're coming, and so I'm taking in water, and I'm just like, <laughs> and then trying to swim and panicking and freaking out. So you guys, fight or flight was kicking in, and it was just like adrenaline kicking in, and, and right as my body was just about to like fully give out, like I had, I had given everything that I had, I reached the shore. And you guys, I would have kissed the beach, except that I was so out of breath. And so I was just like so physically spent that I could, I could hardly even like stand up. But I gathered myself and I looked out and Jen is still out there with her head down, way out there. She's still a few hundred feet out and I thought, I'm looking at her and I'm going, come on, babe. You need to realize what's going on and you need to start heading, heading back. You need to get going and you need to get going now. Because I'm a, I'm a much stronger swimmer than she is and I barely made it. So I just, I just stood there getting my breath and getting my strength back, kind of watching her. And after a few minutes that just felt like eternity, she finally started to head back in. And then she started to feel what was going on. And so she, she battled. She battled for a couple of minutes, and she was still way the heck out there. And then she finally lifted up her head to figure out where I was at, and she yelled. She was like, Jay! And, and I, I was like, oh, my God. She's in trouble. Like, like what am I going to do? Like, I, I'm not strong enough to, like, go out there and, and, and bring her in. I barely got myself in. And so I'm just standing on the shore watching my wife out there going, oh, God, help me. Like, God, help her. Like, God, do, do something. And so as I stood there pleading with God for a, a minute or two, I remembered something. That earlier there had been a family on the beach with a boogie board. And so I looked down the, away down the other end of the beach, and there they were. They were still there, and they were like two football fields down. And there was only one other family on this whole beach, and there's nobody around. And it's not like there's a lifeguard. There's nothing. There's only one other family on the whole beach, and they've got a little kid, about 10 years old, and he's, he's playing and building sandcastles. So I'm having this freak-out moment, like my wife is going to die, and he's like, would you look at my sandcastle? And I'm just like, shut up, kid. But he came in really handy because I was like, oh, okay, I got a plan. So I said, hey, kid, 
I need you to see that family down there? He's like, way down there? I'm like, yeah. Uh, see that family? They, I need you to go down to them and get their boogie board. He's like, what? And I said, do you see my wife out there? She's in trouble. I need you to get that boogie board. And so this kid, I, like, I, and I sent the kid. You're like, well, why didn't you just go get it? Because I didn't want Jen to feel abandoned. Like, if I walked all the way down there, she would feel like I was leaving her alone to drown. So thankfully, he sprinted as fast as he possibly could. He got me the boogie board. And then I stood on the shore, and I was like, I really don't want to go out there. <laughs> so I was like, I got a boogie board. Do you, do you, like, you want me to come get you? And I'm hoping she's like, no, I got it. And she's like, yes, like emphatically, like, yes. So, so I got on the board and floated out, and, and you guys, we kicked our way in. But it was, it was terrifying. So, so afterward, the family that loaned us the board said, wow. They were like, whoa, that was really something. Like, can we take your picture? <laughs> and you guys, you can see from the picture how exhausted I was. I mean... Gosh. No, okay, so actually, after the ordeal, they pretty much just left us alone. The, the dad came over, he's like, you got to be careful in Mexico. The currents are strong. I'm like, thanks. But that, that whole event was, was freaking nuts because without that kid and that family that was way down and they're bored, you guys, Jen, would, she would have died in 2015. And that, that little beach was so remote that most days we were the only ones there, and we went snorkeling when we were the only ones there. And when someone was there, nobody had a boogie board. So, so I'm just watching her with no plan and no hope, and then I prayed and prayed and prayed, and then I remembered, and then Jen lived. That's what happened. They have one, one more experience of prayer, that, and, and I, this one I've talked about a lot, um, but my son Cameron had a brain injury playing football when he was 13. And those of you know, it sent him into a, a tailspin. And I won't go into the details because most of you are very familiar with it all. But his, his life devolved into depression and addiction and suicidality to the point that by the time he was 18, he was in the ICU at UW after another overdose, okay, another suicide attempt. And I, I'll tell you something. What that feels like as a parent is like indescribable. So for five years, we just watched our son spiral. We had done everything that we knew to do. We, we got him to the doctors and the specialists. We got him into treatment programs, and he just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we did everything that we could, but it just got worse. And so here we were in the hospital again, in the ICU at UW. And you guys, in the last year or two of that, like when it was at its height and at its worst, I, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and while, while I was still in that sort of half-awake, half-asleep state, I would, I would think, oh, wow. I was just having like the worst dream. All that, all that stuff with Cam, man, that was, that was just a bad dream. And I'm like, phew. And then I would wake up just enough to realize, oh, no, this is, this is all real. Oh, God, this is real. And at that point, you guys, this would happen again and again. All I could do to not completely spin out was to just pray. God, I know you love Cam more than I do. 
And God, I know, you, I know you can heal. I know you work in ways that I can't see. Would you do what only you can do? The doctors can't, Jen and I can't, his sisters can't, but you can, God. Would you do what only you can do? Would you draw him to you, heal him, and breathe new life into him? Would you, would you protect him from the people and the ideas and spiritual forces that would harm him and surround him with people and ideas and spiritual forces that will lead him to you? Would you take, take away all that's afflicting him and just fill him with the, the fruits of the Spirit? Would you fill him, God, would you fill him with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? And night after night, I'd, I would wake up and I would pray some version of that prayer. And you guys, this peace that I cannot explain in the middle of the night would just like sweep over me. And somehow I would be able to go back to sleep again. And Jen would do the same thing kind of on, on her own, in her own time and in her own way. And somehow the two of us just sort of kept at life. We kept parenting our other girls. We kept leading this church as best we could. And it's, it's, it's like God supernaturally carried us through that season. Even though for five years, through all of those prayers, Cam only deteriorated. But then one day, amidst all of that, amidst all those prayers, Jen got a crazy idea, right? She's like, well, what, what, if, what if we got out of the cycle of, of hospitals and meds and treatment centers? Because Cam's been going with us to Haiti to serve the poor since he was a little kid, and every time he's there, he just comes alive. Every time. He has since he was a little kid. So what if, what if we break out of this cycle of hospitals and treatment centers and meds and all this stuff that clearly isn't working? And what if Cam just up and moved to Haiti? What if he, in a way, just hit the reset button for his life? So we sat next to his bed in the ICU, and Jen shared her crazy idea. And you guys know what's happened. He's been in Haiti for four years. And it has been, like, miraculous. I mean, he is, he is becoming new. He's becoming whole again. Like, he, he's found friends and meaningful work and community. He has fallen in love with Jesus afresh. And he's growing roots in Jesus, developing rhythms, figuring out how to stay connected to Christ. And so what happens these days, for those of you that have done it, when you talk to Cam, what you see is you just see him like embodying the fruits of the Spirit, right? Especially joy and peace, self-control. Like this really has happened. So, so what do I make of all these like experiences with prayer? Well, as a pastor, this probably won't shock you, but I think there's something to it. And yet even so, and here's the crazy part, even though I am firmly convinced there's something to it, I still struggle with the practice of prayer. Despite obvious blessings, it's still hard for me. So a while back, I was listening to a podcast on prayer from Tim Mackey and uh, Dr. Tim Mackey, so like the brilliant mind and scholar behind the Bible Project. And he was admitting his own struggles with the experience of prayer. And he described an encounter that he had that has really helped him. So as like a hyper-intellectual 
and scholar um, who wrestles with all kinds of theological things, he'll sometimes go on several day hiking trips all by himself. So like the combo of exercise, solitude, and nature just kind of clears his mind. So a few years back, he was, he was hiking on Mount Hood. And he was walking and he was thinking about God and the Bible and meditating, kind of like me on the mower. Um, when off the trail in the bushes, he heard a burst of rustling. And it arrested his attention, of course, because when you're alone hiking, you know, on Mount Hood, the first thought is bear. But as he looked, it wasn't a bear. It was a woman, like another solitary hiker. And she said to him with her mouth full, she's like, can you believe all these huckleberries? <laughs> so <laughs> she's in the bushes picking huckleberries and stuffing her face. And when she pointed it out, it's like he got out of his own head for a second and he looked around and he realized that for miles and miles on Mount Hood, the terrain was thick with like the densest huckleberry bushes loaded with all these fat, juicy purple berries. But until that moment, he'd been so in his head that he hadn't noticed any of it at all. So he did the cliche thing, and he stopped to smell the berries. Actually, he stopped to eat the berries. Uh, and for the next three days, it's like they followed him around on the trail. Here's what he says. He says, I had berries as snacks. I had huckleberries in my trail mix. I loaded my oatmeal every morning with them. I learned that huckleberries will keep you very regular, which is great on the trail. <laughs> It was like all of a sudden, this whole layer of my experience got enriched. You could smell them in the heat of the day. And it was like what was already going to be a great trip just had this layer of additional richness to it. Later on the trip, um, he, was, he was in prayer, and something occurred to him. He said, I was, I was praying, and I felt my attention being drawn back to that moment. I felt like the Spirit was inviting me to see something important. I realized the experience that I had that was condensed in just those couple minutes totally transformed the rest of my three days on the mountain. It was like a, a miniature parable of my own spiritual journey. I didn't change locations when I encountered that woman on the trail. I was in the exact same spot I was before, but the moment she pointed out to me this thing that was surrounding me, my whole experience of that place became different. My awareness became deeper, and all of a sudden, I was having an experience that was engaging my whole body. I could smell the berries. I was tasting the berries. I was noticing all kinds of different things as I went further on from there. Okay, so, so the huckleberries have become, for Tim Mackey, a metaphor for the presence of God. And he's endeavored to heighten his awareness of it through prayer. So he goes on to describe what's been happening. He says, I've just begun to have experiences where all of a sudden this whole layer of reality is opening up around me. And I have a hunch that it's always been there, like those huckleberries. But for one reason or another, I've been blind to this rich, delicious experience that's all around me. In fact, it has never not been around me. But I haven't been aware that it's there. And that was the gift of my huckleberry experience on the mountain. And you guys, I can so relate to what he's describing because I have spent so much of my life so preoccupied with certain things. But every once in a while, something makes me, something makes me pause, 
right? A job mowing or the near death of my wife or a really sick son. And when I pause long enough to stop and look around, I discover the presence of a God of immense love who's actually been there the whole time. And, and not only have I, I personally experienced this again and again, it turns out this is a theme that like runs, is, it, it runs all through the Bible. Like it's everywhere. Like uh, today I'm, I'm going to, uh, so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to run through a boatload of passages and we're going to cruise through them. And my hope is that in doing it, we, we, we see something beautiful. So here's, the first one is a very famous scene. Um, it's the moment Jesus is being crucified. So two criminals are being crucified next to him, and one makes a request, right? Most of you know this. Most of you know this. Um, the, the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, for most of us, when we reflect on this, in our mind, we, we swap the word paradise with heaven, Right? I mean, today, Jesus is saying, well, today you'll be with me in heaven. And that's not entirely wrong, but it's not exactly what Jesus says. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, the Greek word translated paradise here simply means garden. And in the Jewish world and in the Jewish mind, garden referred to one infamous place, right? The Garden of Eden. The garden, of, uh, the garden at the beginning of Genesis. So, so try to feel the strangeness of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, truly I tell you, you and me will be together later today in the Garden of Eden. Just let that sit. That's odd. Because the presence of the garden, right, of paradise is in their future. Like later today when we're dead. They're rapidly approaching future. But the Garden of Eden is a thing of the past, right? And yet still Jesus says, today you'll be with me in the garden. Now when we hear this, we, we should think like, wait, what? Well, when is paradise? Like, when is the Garden of Eden? Is it in the past? Or is it in the extremely near, or, you know, extremely near future for Jesus and this man? And, and the picture then, the picture gets kind of, murkier uh, when we go to other places in scripture like you go to the book of revelation so let's time travel from genesis the first book to the last book uh, when we when we look at the last scene in revelation now this is distant future right people disagree about the book of revelation but what everybody agrees on is the last couple of chapters are distant future like the cosmic future and here's what john describes this is chapter 22 it says the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood, stood the tree of life, bearing the 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So here's the picture of a river and the tree of life, just like we see in Genesis. This is Garden of Eden imagery, but this is revelation, right? This is distant future. This is not a, a picture of the distant past from Genesis or the near future like Jesus is talking about with this criminal. It's a vision of like the far out future, the cosmic future. So, so this complicates things all the more. Like when is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in like the near future or is it in the distant future? 
So let's look at one more passage that complicates this even more. Um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about an experience that he had had 14 years earlier, 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. And he talks about it in the third person, which is weird, um, like it's somebody else. But then if you read further, you find out, oh, no, it's actually Paul. So he's kind of, he's kind of, it goes like this. He's kind of like, let me tell you about a guy. And then later on, he's like, oh yeah, the guy's me. So here's, here's the experience Paul describes. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. So 14 years ago, Paul went where? To heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to where? Paradise. And heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. So a couple of things are noteworthy. First, he begins the vision by saying he was caught up to the third heaven. So he's talking about heaven, right? And then he goes on to say, I w- oh yeah, I was caught up to paradise. So apparently paradise and heaven are like one place. He uses those two words interchangeably. So to Paul, there, there are two ways of talking about the same reality. But second, and, and notice, this was an experience that Paul had had 14 years before writing 2 Corinthians, meaning... At the time of the experience, paradise for Paul was a present reality. For Paul, in that moment, paradise was was like now. So this really complicates the whole timeline for paradise, right? Like when is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in the immediate future? Is it in the distant future? Or is it available in the present? And here's what I hope that you have a a deep instinct in you that the answer to the question is yes. All of that. And you may not fully know why you suspect the answer is yes, but I think you're right. And I think it was the assumption that Jesus and Paul and John, the author of Revelation, all had in the back of their minds, which is why they can talk about paradise as appearing in many times and many places. So let's jump back into the book of Revelation for a second. The first chapter now. So the the book of Revelation is born out of a vision given given to John. And it begins with God speaking to him. And God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Greek for like the A and the Z. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What does that do to your concept of time? (laughs) Is, was, and is to come. So the the book of Revelation was written to and for churches in John's day. Okay, it's a vision, but John begins the letter explaining this vision that's coming and sort of where it comes from. So in writing to the Jesus followers of his own day, John says, like in the next verse right after this, he says, I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And what he means is that his church had undergone kind of like a local persecution. And because he was the leader and the main teacher there, John had been taken and he'd been put on this island. He'd been exiled on a like a Greek prison island. So In exile on that island, he had this experience that he's about to describe 
And here's, here's how he leads into it. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And like, if you've ever tried to read like the last book of the Bible, you know what happens next. It gets crazy, right? It gets crazy. And what happens is all of a sudden, John is transported to the heavenly temple and he meets a human figure who's on fire with lightning bolts and stuff. And John realizes that it is the risen Jesus that he's encountering. And so you go, okay, well, so where is John? Well, he's on a Greek island. But he's also in the spirit. And he's in heaven. And, and the message he gets from Jesus is, is for the churches, those that are under persecution, that if they overcome, they will inherit paradise, not only one day, but also to a degree where they are right now. So this opens up like a parallel question, which is, where is paradise? John is having an experience of paradise right on a Greek prison island, and he insists that the persecuted can also access it right where they are. Not just like away from earth, but where they are right now. And this is confusing. Like this is hard for us to get our minds around. And so I want us to pause here for a second and let this sink in. Because when we hit these moments in Scripture where it's like, yeah, I don't have categories for what they're talking about. Like it's rubbing up against my ways of normally viewing and existing in the world that I can't, and I can't make sense of it. We really need to pay attention in those moments because what, what we're encountering is super important. And it's this, that Jesus and the apostles and the biblical authors have a fundamentally different view of reality than most of us hold, and vastly different from the view of our surrounding culture. And here's the fundamental difference, that reality, as you and I experience it in our physical world, the reality that we experience through our five, sentence, uh, five senses and the four dimensions that we inhabit, right? Height, width, depth, time. Thank you, Einstein. The biblical authors just take, take it for granted that that's not all of a reality that there is to be experienced, that there's actually something more, that there's something like beyond. There's a whole layer and dimension of reality that's not just real, it's actually more real than what we experience through our five senses and through the four dimensions that we inhabit. And so it's so real that actually nothing would exist without it. So it's, it's the source holding all of reality together that we do experience. That's huge. Now, they just take that reality for granted, which is why they don't like write philosophy books on it trying to, trying to argue its reality. They weren't trying to convince anybody of it because they all just took it for granted. And so when, when we read the Bible and we're like, okay, so when is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in the near future? Is it in the distant future? The answer is, yeah, see, we're just not thinking on the same wavelength. If we actually saw the world the way Jesus did, we would know that paradise, paradise is not a time and it's not a place. It's a person. Notice Jesus says to the criminal, today you will be with me. And notice that Paul was caught up and he experiences a person. And when John is in the heavenly temple, he sees a person. 
The view of reality that all the apostles, the biblical authors, and Jesus himself take for granted is that paradise isn't just a place or a time. It's a person. They took for granted that the foundation of all reality that makes every part of our lived experience like even real in the first place is a person with a beautiful mind and heart whose very essence is outpouring other-centered, life-giving, eternal love. So as, as Tim Mackey puts it, we constantly live surrounded by huckleberries. In fact, there has never been a moment or molecule that hasn't had the presence of huckleberries making its existence possible. And you guys, this, this vision of reality sort of sits underneath and is woven like all through Scripture. And it comes to us in various metaphors, right? I mean, I think of David in Psalm 23. He says, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So a couple, couple, of, a couple more passages real quick, and then I'll close. Start with a guy named Jacob. So Abraham's grandson. He has a crazy experience. We're told about it in Genesis 20. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. So he's wandering through the desert. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Comfy. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And once again, we're going to see in a second, there's a person at the center of this experience. Next verse. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And right there in the desert, Jacob has this heaven on earth moment. So it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So notice, Jacob, Jacob doesn't go to some sacred space to encounter paradise. He's, he's, just, he's just traveling in the middle of a barren desert, and suddenly he's aware of what he couldn't perceive before. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Okay, let's jump to Ezekiel. So a story background is Israel has been taken into captivity by Babylon, and Ezekiel is in a house in a refugee camp living as a refugee in Babylon. And he too has a, has a dramatic experience. It says Ezekiel chapter 8. Verse 1, in the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. What the heck does that mean? Well, he goes on to describe it. He says, I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. So again, at the center of this is a person, a blazing fire person. <laughs> he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. I'm sure it was gentle. 
the Spirit lifted me up. Wait, is it a figure of a, of a person or is it the Spirit? Yes. Be, he, the Spirit lifted me up between, between earth and heaven and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem. Okay, so think about what's happening here for a minute. If you're in between like heaven and earth, where are you? Well, he already told us where he is. He's in a refugee camp in Babylon. He's in a house in that camp. That's where he is. But he's also in the spirit, traversing the universe, and he's about to go take a, like a virtual tour of Jerusalem. And he's there in Jerusalem, but nobody can see that he's there, and he's cruising around, and then he wakes up again right in his house. And so this just leads us right back to the question, where is paradise? Is it on a Greek island called Patmos? Is it in the desert near Haran, or is it in a refugee camp in Babylon? And again, I hope something deep inside you says, I don't really get all this, but I think the answer is yes. Because really, these are two ways of asking the same thing. And here, we are bumping up against the, the, the same biblical view of reality that Jesus and the prophets and the biblical authors all just took for granted. Now, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I know that what we call like conscious awareness is actually kind of limited. Like we only ever really perceive bits of reality. We're missing all kinds of stuff. Like we can stand amid fields of huckleberries totally unaware, right? Some of you are like, if I was standing there, I would have seen them. Good for you. I also know that we're all wired from an early age to, to kind of fix our attention and perceive certain things more than others. We each have countless, like, assorted life experiences, and they've conditioned us to see the world a certain way. Like, we form neural pathways that, that train our brains, and they shape what we experience as reality. For instance, if you have experienced some kind of trauma, you may engage certain experiences differently from other people, right? You might, you might feel fear or anxiety because of your neural pathways, right? There, there may not be anything to actually fear. The fear might be irrational, but your brain has been conditioned by your past experience and it causes you to feel like this is real, like this fear that you have is real. So our perceptions of, of reality, are, they're tainted. And what Jesus and the biblical authors and the prophets all insisted is this. There's a, there's a level of conscious awareness of reality that is like, a, like at a soul level. There is a way of interacting with the eternal now, like that person. As Tim Mackey would say, the presence of huckleberries all around us and that they've never not been all around us. But we find it difficult to cultivate the habits of mind and heart that enable us to become aware of it in day-to-day -day life. So what this alternate vision of reality is claiming is this, that at the heart of all being and existence is a person. And it's, it's not a certain time or moment or place. It, it's a person whose essence is like outpouring love. And this alternate vision of reality is claiming that if we open ourselves up, if we get beyond our deeply ingrained neural pathways, 
maybe open ourselves up through practices that are very ancient, like go back to the prayer habits and some of the practices of Jesus, we can avail ourselves to paradise now in ways that just might blow, blow up our vision of reality. So let me, let me close with one more scene that's very familiar to, to many of you. Jesus goes up on a mountain with his three guys, right? This is Luke 9. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on, onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So while Jesus is praying, Jesus starts looking like that figure of a human, like the one Jacob saw and Ezekiel saw and John would later go on to see. He becomes a fireball surrounded by like lightning and stuff. And he's joined by two glorious figures, Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about his impending crucifixion. Okay, picking up in verse 34. A cloud appeared and covered them, that's Peter, James, and John, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. I think the last line's funny. They kept this to themselves for a while. I mean, how do you explain that, right? Eventually they told some people, because this is in the, the Gospel of Luke. Luke found out about it. But think about the, the gravity of what's being revealed in this experience. They go up on a mountain with Rabbi Jesus, and this voice reveals the true identity of the eternal now, the true identity of Jesus. This is my son, Listen to him. And in this moment, it's revealed to them that, that paradise is a person. And they can see clearly for the first time who Jesus really is. He's the one who makes all of reality possible. And then in a moment, it's over like that, and they go down the mountain. Now, I, I want to be like uber super clear about something. I'm absolutely not saying that life following Jesus looks just like this. That it's filled with moments like these every single day. And if it's not, you're doing it wrong. Clearly not. I mean, even Paul said that his thing happened like 14 years ago, right? A while back. And, and, and we're not living in the Garden of Eden. Have you noticed that? Right? Th this world is a mess. And things here are not okay. Uh, however, even in life outside of Eden, even in exile, God has this habit of planting moments of paradise right in the middle of our deepest moments of pain. Whether it's me waking up with unshakable fear and anxiety over my son, whether it's the crisis that you find yourself in right now, whether it's a diagnosis that you got recently, whether it's the overwhelming uncertainty that you're facing in some arena of your life, I don't, I don't know where there might be opportunity, but we're all encountering moments of deep pain.
pain and loss and grief as we navigate our way through life. That's life outside Eden. And the promise is that one day we'll be home. One day we'll be home for good. But even now, God is offering each of us a choice. And the choice is this. What version of reality will I choose to inhabit? If part of following Jesus means becoming like him, which includes adopting his way of seeing the world, then you guys, what, what I really desire for myself and for you guys that, that I love is to like go on a journey, like forming the habits of mind and heart that will allow us to see the huckleberries, um, to learn to perceive this thing that's all around us waiting to be noticed. And so over the next couple of weeks and months, we're going to talk about prayer and we're going to talk about the kingdom. And along the way, I'm going to invite you guys to engage in some ancient practices. Some of them we'll do, we'll do together. Others um, you're invited to do in solitude. Um, for today, we're going to keep it really simple. We're going, to, we're going to engage in a really simple one. And I want to have the worship team go ahead and make their way up. And then I just want to invite you guys to recite together the sacred words of Jesus. To just like speak together with one voice the Lord's Prayer. Um, you guys realize for 2,000 years, gatherings of Jesus, like Jesus' followers, have been reciting this together for 2,000 years. And I, here's what I'll confess. I'll confess, you guys, there are many, like many English translations of it. Um, and so some of you, you have it memorized. But not all of you have it memorized in the same version. Um, so I'm like, okay, shoot, I have to pick one for us to like recite together. And some of you are going to go, that's not right. Um, get over it. <laughs> so here's what I did. I, I chose the, the most ancient version that's still in English. Um, because, and here's why. Because so much of what we do here is like super laid back and casual. So I picked like the most ancient, formal version that exists. Um, it's the traditional Anglican version. And maybe some of you are, are really familiar with it. Um, but Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. They watched Jesus pray, and they're like, Lord, teach us to pray. And these words are a part of his response, and so they'll be up on the screen. And I want to invite you guys to, to stand and maybe just open your hands as a sign of, of, like, openness, like a physical plea to God saying, God, help me see as Jesus saw. Like, Lord, open me to reality as Jesus saw it. So, okay, for those of you that are willing, let's, let's recite together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.